Hello and welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your host, Mango. And I'm your co-host, Buddy. And uh, this week I think we're going to be talking about uh, some DLC and video games. But uh, before uh, we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the audience what we usually talk about on this show? Well, it's pretty simple. Uh, On some Derps Talk About Games, we tend to talk about games. Uh, Before we get into the DLC stuff, I wanted to follow up a little bit on our Fallout 4 conversation... Uh, because last week you got a little, got a little heavy and by heavy, I mean negative on fallout four. And I don't want anybody to really like, you know, misrepresent or misunderstand where we were coming from. Um, because I definitely do think it's, you know, I definitely do think it's a good game and it has grown on me since last week. Uh, you know, I've been playing, I've been playing tons of it. I think I've added another 30 hours to my playthrough. Um, but uh, but the, the first thing I wanted to say is that the one note that I was really harping on last week was about how these characters were not well-developed, right? They were all just these – they were all just, like, one-note, two-dimensional, super flat, right? They just kind of had, like, their one personality trait that some writer was like, this person is feisty, right? And then that was their whole thing. <laughs> um, at least with the companions. I haven't seen it as much with other stuff yet. Um, the companions do grow on you. Some of them are still pretty crappy. Uh, you know, Preston Garvey, for instance, doesn't really get to an interesting, uh, an interesting point. But Piper, uh, and McCready, who are both great, uh, great companions, uh, bring a lot of depth to their character, which I really, really love and appreciate. So, I just wanted to get that out of the way. Yeah, um... From the opposite kind of perspective, I don't use companions, and uh, no, like at la- the point last week, it was kind of like, well, that's preventing me from seeing like what the problems are with them, um, and so they're all sitting in sanctuary, and now I hate most of them because every time I go to build, like go to like work on the workbench, somebody's standing nearby, and, and Strong's like, well, I hope we find the milk of human kindness soon. I need to eat people, Bruh. or <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like. Can you please shut up? Like, I, I don't care. You're only here because I, like, if I don't accept you as a companion, I can't advance some other things. I'm just going to send you all back to, back to Sanctuary because I also don't have a high enough charisma to really warrant or care about supporting multiple settlements. Uh, so, yeah, there's Yeah, I, the other thing, I, I, was, uh, I was also struck when I was explaining how I felt about Fallout 4 to a friend of mine. And I came up with this analogy. Let me know if this kind of like hits the mark. Um, Fallout Four feels a lot like The Dark Knight Rises to me. Uh, I, for the record, I like The Dark Knight Rises. I like the whole Dark Knight trilogy, right? I think The Dark Knight Rises is a good movie. The problem is, is that because it came right after The Dark Knight, which was super spectacular, and it had a lot of like little things that were like little nitpicky ish things that were really interesting to talk about but the stuff that it did well nobody cared about right like sure yeah the action scenes in dark knight rises were great but that's really all you can say about it right there's really not a lot else to to dig into but digging into like saying like oh hey i guess dark knight rises spoilers for anybody the fact that batman has to learn how to be batman so that he gets his back broken and learns how to be batman again that just that that's weird right and that's something that people can dig into and we talk about and it kind of brings the conversation to a negative space even though i don't think the movie itself is all that negative 
Um, and I feel like the same thing is true, especially in regards to, uh, you know, Fallout New Vegas and Skyrim, both of which I think of as, you know, almost legendarily great games. Um, these small nitpicky things like the dialogue system, like uh, the um, control scheme, the key mapping stuff that we were talking about last week, they, they are nitpicky. They are smaller than it sounded like because we filled an hour and a half. Talking about that stuff. Oh, so I, I, I think that's mostly there. I will say, like, Fallout 4 better than, like, Dark Knight Rises. Um, I think part of it, too, is that, like, also, I, you know, if we had been doing this podcast back when New Vegas and Fallout 3 had come out, or New Crime had come out, I would have had the same 15-minute rant about how the key bindings are terrible, because they're always terrible in the Bethesda games. <laughs> uh, and that's just my personal, personal peeve. Um... And if we had, and I think part of it too is that like a lot of the things that Fallout Four does particularly well, better than the other games in the series, like the sh- like the shooting, is very easy to twist into this kind of like uh, into a negative aspect. Essentially, it's like oh, they've sacrificed the uh, the RPG elements on the altar of being a better shooter, which I don't think is true. Um, but it's a very easy thing to say and a very easy place to get to. Um, and, and similarly, I, I, again, I'll, I'll reiterate my point from last week, which is essentially that like, yes, I think that I, you know, you, you called the dialogue system nitpicky. I don't think that's pretty particularly nitpicky. I think it's a very important thing to talk about, but I will reiterate my point from last week in saying that I'm glad that they tried something new, even if they ultimately missed the mark, um, there. Yeah. Anyway, that's uh, that's enough about Fallout 4. We've spent two whole podcasts in the first five minutes on that. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to talk about, because uh, I've been meaning to get here, but I, have, I just hadn't had the time because Fallout was sucking so much of it in, is I finally started the Legacy of the Void campaign, and oh god, it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. It's one of those things where... If you remember, I expressed a lot of hesitation about uh, various aspects of... A lot of it was kind of lore stuff and, you know, preview stuff that I had seen. And I, it was really wary of it. I was like, you know, man, this is a little bit weird that we're following Artanis' story rather than Zeratul's story, right? Like, Zeratul has been the big Protoss main player. Um, so why are we all of a sudden shifting to Artanis, who we don't know anything about, kind of thing? And also, like, you know, the Protoss share... It's called the Kala, right? The Protoss share this giant telepathic network. And so it's like, how, how do you get meaningful character moments between these guys, right? Like, for instance, it, it happens all the time in, you know, in Heart of the Swarm, Kerrigan talking to the different Zerg uh, kind of lieutenants she has, right? And then, and then kind of bracing against one another. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm reminded of, um, you know, James Rayner. Who's obviously a little bit, yeah, a little bit more rough and tumble, a little bit more slick and an outlaw uh, compared to someone who's kind of straight and buttoned up like Matt Horner, uh, or even farther on the outlaw spectrum like you know Tychus. Um, and man, the, it's like it's like they it's like they went down this checklist in the first like half a mission and a couple of like little cinematics where they were just like don't worry buddy buddy don't worry we got this and they just like explained how all of that all of that stuff was gonna be just fine and i don't want to give any spoilers out i really really am not going to spoil this for anybody i just want to say if you had those same kinds of reservations 
God, man, I really need to trust in Blizzard, man. They, they've pulled it off so far. Uh, we'll see how it ends. I'll probably finish it this week, and uh, we'll get a more thorough post-Legacy of the Void report uh, later. Well, that sounds that sounds great. Um, I don't care about StarCraft. <laughs> yeah. God damn it, Mango! <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, I just, I'm just not drawn in. But uh, on a similar note, in something I did this week, also from Blizzard... Um, I've been in the, the Overwatch beta this weekend, um, and that's a lot of fun. Shooting people's real good. It feels kind of like if you mashed up TF2 and, say, something like League of Legends. Um, it's really good. You know, from a multiplayer comment perspective, obviously there's no story, at least yet. There's some story elements that you can read about online, but none of it's touched in the least a bit, um, in the game. But, uh... It's 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 really cool. There's some really awesome mechanics. Um, I think the map, the three, I think it's like three maps that you have access to, are pretty well designed. Um, I think there's some issues with it. I think that something like uh, like like damage dealers are are celebrated, and uh, the supports are less so. Um, like all all of the plays of the game. Like one one of the very cool features is that after each map, there's a there's a play of the game. And it's usually a play where there's a big old multi-kill, which, you know, your support or your 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 tank who's soaking damage isn't usually going to get credit for, or isn't going to get, like, a, one of those multi-kills. Um, and so, like, even if, like, he stands there and absorbs, like, 3,000 points of damage, that doesn't make play of the game. And I think just kind of, like, the, the, the general kind of, you know, stereotypical way that these games get played, people want to play more offense than the defense and so there's often problems getting team composition together properly um as you can sometimes get in league of legends um without enough text chat to be even be like like you know i want to play offense i want to play support type of deal just kind of like you like uh there's people like me who wait for other people to pick and pick to fill in those any positions and people who are just like oh i'm gonna play reaper i don't care if the other people are also playing reaper type of deal. <laughs> Um, I imagine that we'll do a more thorough cast when, you know, Overwatch comes out. We'll probably pull, that, that might be a good one to pull somebody in. Somebody yeah, like that's TF2, true. Like a lot of TF2 experience kind of thing, or a lot of FPS experience like Monik. Uh, one of our yeah. friends, Monik, plays tons of FPSs and knows them much better than I do. Uh, but something that really entices me about Overwatch is this idea of team comps. And I really, you know, something that bugs me about Call of Duty is that, you know, they're like different classes, and they do play a little bit differently, but, you know, realistically, the kinds of, uh, the, ki- the kind of differences between, um, you know, a sniper, a shotgunner, somebody who does, like, mid-range with, like, an assault rifle, um, it's, it's there, but it's always felt like it was, like, there's a whole well of untapped potential under the surface, you know, where you start fucking with all of these crazy things, like, you know, um adding different abilities that people that, that that certain classes have and having different stat lines for those classes and all of that stuff and Overwatch is very much capitalizing on that potential based on everything I've read so far. So I I, I want to see how much it lives up to that kind of pipe dream um of a yeah, uh, no, definitely a class-based shooter like that. Definitely. Overwatch is designed to be a team-based game or something like COD is designed to be essentially a single-player game with nominal teams that has different classes in it. 
Like every every character in Call of Duty is meant to stand on his own. Yeah. Um, which is just a different, and you know, it's it's that's fun for playing an arcade shooter that you just want to kind of be mindless about. But you need a little bit more, a little bit more strategy, as it were, uh, for for Overwatch. Yeah, uh, I'm excited for when I finally it comes out because I bet I'm not going to get a beta email because I'm not very lucky. Uh, <laughs> um, the Overwatch segues pretty nicely into our main topic because there's been a lot of talk about. Uh, Overwatch being a $40 pay-for-it-upfront game with more or less implied uh, batches of DLC uh, coming out later. I don't have a great uh, handle so, on so, it. So just, just to be completely clear, it's not implied. It's that when people ask them, will we have to pay for Heroes of the Future, they refuse to answer the question, which some people say is implied. Um, other people point out that they are hesitant to say anything because things like they want to work on the other systems in the game. They don't know how that's going to feed in. Like the 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 standard pro, pro the standard pro Blizzard answer I've seen is something along the lines of, um, you know, right before the beta released, like three days before the beta released, they had a a character progression system that was something like uh, you gained experience with each champion. And you unlocked various things for that champion um, or that hero. I don't know what they're called in Overwatch. Um, as they go along, um, but that system was pulled, like like I said, three days before the beta was released, um, because they were encountering situations where people would be like, "Well, we need a Winston," and someone would be like, "Oh no, no. Well, I've got. I'm really close to my next level up on my Reaper, so I'm just going to play that anyway. You know, screw the team needs." And so they pulled that system to discourage that, and they still have an advancement system that they want to implement, but they're not quite sure how to do it yet. And that's the kind of reason why they won't commit to any answers on anything about game systems yet. Um, although it could very be well, that's actually pretty interesting. I actually tend to think that Blizzard is uh, relatively cavalier in their betas compared to other companies' betas that I've seen. You know, I'm reminded, for instance, of the um, Heroes of the Storm beta where they completely scrapped the item system like halfway through, right? Like that's a monumental change to make in your beta and they just kind of, you know, they just kind of did it. Um, I think the Hearthstone beta, you know, like people complain obviously a lot about balance in Hearthstone and there not being more balance patches and I definitely empathize with that to a point. Um, but I, you know, I was playing Hearthstone in the beta and there were, there were balance patches all over the place. They were very aggressive about tuning up and tuning down uh, certain certain decks and certain cards, etc. Um, so I, I think that, that it doesn't surprise me that they are that they're there's more behind this veil that they haven't quite released out to beta um, or stuff that they included in the alpha and then they're just like you know what this just doesn't make a ton of sense though I will just say that the system that you've described is a lot like mastery in League of Legends and I don't really think that it's all of that negative a force. I mean, so so the thing about Master League of Legends is it's a very cosmetic thing. Um, I think there was supposed to be some mechanical tie, uh, tied to, tied to the uh, the the advancement system in Overwatch, which I, I think is is very different, right? Like like imagine if you had to unlock a a mastery point, not like the mastery system, but like a mastery point for like your talents, um, in League of Legends for each character individually. Um, and you were, you know, you, you, you'd be in, you'd be, uh, incentivized to play in a certain way rather than in another. Um, and essentially incentivized to not play what the team needed, but what you 
wanted to advance the most. I, I just don't think that's as strong when it's a purely cosmetic thing like the mastery system in League. Hmm. Well, I'm also reminded... It's just another thing that I'm reminded of in Payday, because Payday is sort of similar. Um, but, I don't know. I uh, am not entirely sure... I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. I feel that. I feel that incentive, and I think that it's real. I just, I don't know that it's necessarily worth pulling uh, a pretty, that, it sounds to me like this mastery thing in Overwatch is a pretty engaging mechanic, and I like the, uh, I like yeah. what it, what I it mean, sounds who, who like. Who knows how engaging sure. it is, right? No one saw yeah. it. it. It got pulled before the beta went out. Yeah. Um, and they said they do want to do some sort of advancement system. They just haven't figured out the mechanics. They just didn't like how it was happening with, uh, with with the per champion experience method, so maybe we'll, we'll we'll hopefully find out moving forward. I mean, to me, it sounds like one of the better ways to solve this problem would be you just get generic points at the end of any round, and you can apply them to whatever champion you want. Yeah, probably. So if I'm super close to leveling up Reaper, I can still play Winston for the round, and then at the end of it, level up Re- Reaper with those points. I don't think that's a big deal. Um, but um, anyway. Do how do you feel? I so the the reading that I did, which was lots of Reddit, a little bit of Twitter, uh, basically said that lots of people were kind of dissatisfied with this Overwatch um, system. You know, they kind of they compared it a lot. There were lots and lots of comparisons to TF2, saying, "Oh, you know, TF2 is is free. I can, is TF2 free? Apparently, it is. It, it, so it, TF, I think TF2 released wasn't free, right? Released you." When TF2 released, you had to pay for it. Eventually, it went free-to-play. I have a hat that said that I paid for it. It's called the Proof of Purchase. Um, it's the, yeah, that's okay, essentially... Yeah. The, the comments were a little bit confusing when it got to that stuff. And I've never been a, a TF2 guy, so um, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure. Um, but yeah, you know, a lot, lots of people are kind of saying that that $40 price tag is pretty tough up front. And, uh, I don't know. Do you have, uh, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any feelings? So my, my, my feelings in this in a very, in a very, very general sense are that you have a bunch of people, like, you know, you see people are complaining that it costs $40. I think there's a bunch of people that would have complained if it was a free to play game. They're like, oh, it's more free to play shit, um, type of deal. Um, I think that... Both of those, like, you know, one of those crowds was always going to complain. They were, you were never going to be able to uh, silence it unless you did something like, you know, you can pay for all of the, you can pay $40 up front or free to play and go, which is something like that I think Killer Instinct does. Um, but I don't think that's a model that Blizzard was looking for. Um, I don't think that the uh, free to play model works as well on consoles without everything set up for that. Like, I just, I just don't think that the mechanisms are in place as well for, for consoles. Yeah, it's definitely pretty tough. It, it also is pretty tough because, I mean, you have to go through, uh, you know, uh, I don't think they, they, there aren't Microsoft points anymore, but, you know, you have to go through the Microsoft Marketplace, the PSN Marketplace, um, and I think that that is the, that that's where it gets tough for Blizzard because it's a lot harder for them to manage their own shit when they have to go through these, you know, the Battle.net Microsoft Live and uh, Xbox Live and uh, PSN all to perform the same function. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely. Um, I don't, so I'm, you know, personally, I am not mad about it being a pay-to-play game, as it were. Um, I don't think that 
it needed to be free to play. I think it's. I think a lot of people assumed it was going to be free to play, given what happened with Hearthstone and the type of game that this is. You know, it is. It is a very League of Legends. It is a very Dota two. It is a very Team Fortress two type game, and those are all free to play. Yeah, um, I think people just weren't expecting it to be uh, a pay to play game. I, I think so too, but it makes me. I like that because you know, I, I kind of feel like the industry gets a little bit caught up in monetary trends, which I think is is almost a trap, right? Like people see, oh, hey, fucking Candy Crush is, is this freemium kind of game and or free to play game or whatever, and then like this huge swath of people say this is the next big thing. All games will move to this, and I don't actually think that that's that's ever really relevant, right? I think certain monetary, you know, certain ways to monetize your game are appropriate for certain games. And there's no such thing as a good one. There's no such thing as a bad one. There's just, in the context of the game it's paired with, is this, you know, method of monetization a good one or a bad one? Um, and uh, I like that Blizzard is, you know, switching it up, I guess, so to speak, from their uh, past two releases that have both been, uh, you know, Hearthstone and Heroes of the, uh, of the Storm uh, that have both been free-to-play titles. Yeah, oh, I feel that. Um, I think also that, um, if I'm going to be very charitable to Blizzard, um, Overwatch is supposed to be a very, like, composition-based game, and you can even switch heroes mid, mid-match. Oh, and wow. So, Interesting. I didn't yeah. know that. Um, and so, like, if this composition is so important to the root of this game, and you have a limited, essentially, hero pool, you're not able to kind of hit that kind of composition, right? Like, you know, maybe your team needs a Winston, but you don't have Winston, so you're, you're SOL type of deal. Um, and I think maybe that's kind of what drove this decision, that they wanted to stress the the tactical importance of, of choosing your, your heroes carefully and reactively choosing them, and that's just not as possible with a free-to-play model where you buy the champions individually. Yeah, I, um, I, I definitely feel that. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, if I want to be uncharitable, I will say that this is so they can take $40 from you and then sell you uh, costumes down the road, which they are going to do, but it's like a purely purely a money grab. $40 guaranteed plus, you know, whatever amount of money they can leech out of you for, for costumes. Um, uh, to be honest, that kind of stuff doesn't bug me. Um, yeah, I, I actually, me I, I like, I like those kinds of models in games like this. Uh, for, for instance, models like that in games with very limited lifespans to me, right? If something like, I don't know, uh, you know, like some, some, like a Telltale game, right? I really love those games and everything, uh, but 25 bucks for that 12 hour, you know, give or take, I mean, that's kind of even charitable, experience is actually very cost-efficient, right? And that and that feels good. It's not too expensive. It's not too cheap um, kind of thing, right? Uh, and I think that having, with super, super long-term games like this, right, where, you know, Overwatch is a game that you are supposed to sink hundreds of hours into if you're really into this game right well hypothetically if you do that for 40 bucks and then there's no dlc no kind of microtransaction stuff to come after it it feels worse you know what i mean like it feels worse because there's there's a lot of i think legitimate money on the table that developers are losing and they kind not that they have a right to it but that they really should capitalize it on that and i don't think it's unfair for them to uh to do so in games like those you know that hit 200 hours played without a ton of uh, without a ton of problems um 
And so I, I, I like that model. I think that model is is smart and uh, and encompasses uh, the what it, it encompasses what the game wants to be. I would say. So does your opinion change on this at all? If it stops just being cosmetic costume things and it goes into things like extra champions or different abilities on existing champions stuff like oh, that. Oh no, I, it does that doesn't change for me at all. Um, I mean, so th- uh, this is a lot like Payday actually. Payday has a uh, a very similar system. Um, the base game itself is twenty bucks or whatever, but there is a ton of you know five dollar DLC or whatever. Uh, so that the full price of the game is probably somewhere around $80. Uh, but I like it because, you know, I can, re- I can say, hey, let's play Payday to somebody. We can, we can get the base game for, for 20 bucks, or generally speaking, $5, because I swear to God, they put that game on sale every, like, two weeks. It's ridiculous. Um, and then we can play a couple of games. They can get a feel for it, right? You know, so the, the, it's still the investment is there. The developers have have their cash for it. But that DLC that you add into... I've played 160 hours of Payday. And it was very important to me to get all of the extra unlocked weapons that come with that DLC, right? But for somebody who isn't as into the game, you know, like you, for instance, um, it's it does, it's not like you had to pay $80 in order to play the base experience for the game you might have to play eighty dollars to play the highest level of the game right like to, to to participate in the metagame but at that point you're already starting to crest into uh that that's that's the period where you're cresting into the kind of player that i'm talking about right like the super dedicated player um and yeah i don't know it's, it's also one of those things that like i said it depends on the context of the game there are certain games that do this that would bug the fuck out of me um, and there are certain games that do this that do uh, that do bug the fuck out of me, but I don't think, you know, Payday is kind of the model. And when I look at Overwatch, I see a very similar kind of thing. And I think that it'll it'll more or less kind of come down in that in that vein. Okay, I think mean, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's also a perfect segue. You were talking about the regular DLCs for Payday, um, and the most recent thing that happened for Payday is, of course. Microtransactions. <laughs> are you ready? Are, I, I, I hate this because uh, we're going to lose all of our listeners because we're about to defend these microtransactions. Um, okay. I, I mean, I've got, like, you know, I'm, as you've said, I'm not huge into the game, but I've got some arguments from the other side that are even, even even in a theoretical nature. So why don't you say your piece then? Well, okay. So here's the thing. I don't think, uh, you know, the, these things, they're not perfect, right? There's... There's obviously lots of pieces to this. Uh, so, um, so just for the listeners who don't know, can you go over what the model actually is or what? Sure, sure. I just want to pre. I just want to preempt that I'm not. There are plenty of problems, and I'm sure we're going to agree on a lot of stuff that was done wrong in how these microtransactions were both implemented and uh, and kind of the underlying monetization of them. But here is a, here's a brief history lesson. Every year, uh, Payday Two's been out for four years, three years maybe. No, I think it's four years. Uh, every year. Uh, they come out with a two-week event called Crime Fest, and Crime Fest is this big, big annual update for the game where, uh, you know, for 12 days, Monday through Saturday for these two weeks, every day new content gets released, like new heists, new heisters, uh, you know, DLC, free guns, all this other stuff. This year during Crime Fest, the day one update was the implementation of a system called the Black Market. Uh, the black market basically introduced uh, microtransactions to the game much much the same way that they got introduced in Counter-Strike Global Offensive. Um, 
at the end of every match of payday when you successfully complete a heist uh because obviously for, for people who don't know anything about payday you and a bunch of people get together you rob a bank or you rip off drug dealers or you do whatever that's a heist and if you successfully do this against the computer opponents right these waves and waves kind of like left for dead of cops or of gangsters or of whoever your enemies are um you get one random reward and this reward could be anything from a mod to one of your weapons to a little bit of extra experience some cash right the first thing they did was they implemented um, one of these random rewards was a safe. But the safe doesn't do anything for you unless you have a drill for that safe. And you can purchase a drill for that safe for $2.50 off of the Steam Marketplace. There's our microtransaction. Um, the, the way that, or what the, what the safe does is if you unlock the safe with your purchased drill, you get a weapon skin. The weapon skins come in a wide variety of rarities. You only get one per safe. Um, super common weapon skins just change the look of your weapon and that's it. But much rarer weapon skins, as you get into uncommon, rare, legendary, um, they can actually provide small stat boosts to your guns. Uh, just to give you an example for small, um, it's literally things like plus one damage or plus two accuracy. Um, in fact, one of the things that they did as part of this update was expand some of the statistics so that the numbers could be incrementally smaller on these stat boosting skins. But yes, the, the, some of these skins do boost stats. Um, this was met with widespread revulsion from the hardcore dedicated Payday 2 community, most notably the subreddit and the Steam forums. Um, on day six of Crimefest, they released uh, an update that said that you could also randomly get drills at the end of heists. Uh, Overkill, the developers claim that this was always intended, but the fans are basically convinced at this point that uh it was just put in at the last second to appease uh you know appease angry fans or whatever and then the most recent controversy which is even more of a clusterfuck uh the most recent controversy is that in update 90 of the game which is just a small content patch they have retired one of the safes so that you so that you know this safe you can no longer buy drills off the off the steam marketplace for it right you have to buy it from other people or trade it from other people um and they introduce an entirely new safe with an entirely new set of drills so all of the people that have that old safe they can no longer randomly get the required drill they need in order to unlock that specific safe to be fair this was announced way ahead of time uh in plenty of plenty of announcements saying hey one week left two weeks left you know a couple weeks left before this safe comes off or this drill comes off the market but people folks are very angry about that the second thing is they announced this thing called team boosts which are um a special affix almost like uh that you can apply to a weapon skin and what it does is every once in a while uh when you complete a heist it will proc and it will give everyone that you are heisting with a large, large boost of either experience or money. Um, because it can only be applied to weapon skins, hypothetically speaking, um, you know the, these team boosts can't. You can like if I if I'm in my optimal build for whatever, and I only have one weapon skin for a super shitty weapon, right? I can't use my team boost on my optimal weapon i have to use it on a shitty weapon and that's even if i randomed into a weapon skin in the first place by randoming into a drill um anyway there is 
a capstone to all of this that I haven't mentioned because it is one of the most contentious points here. In 2013, the one of the leading producers of Payday, uh, Payday 2 got on the Steam forums and said that there will never be microtransactions in Payday 2, and anyone who thought there would be, shame on those people. Um, so this everything that I just described is giant hypocrisy, um, according to you know the fan base and according to uh, Reddit and the forums and everything. And that uh, they, they really do feel betrayed by these developers. Wow, that was a fucking history lesson. All right, and, and you said <laughs> that somehow all of this is defensible. So, buddy, mount your defense. Okay. One of the things that's been criticized a lot, and I think it is honestly just this got picked up by a lot of press outlets without really understanding the specifics of what Payday 2 is, is they hear... Stat boosting microtransactions on a multiplayer first person shooter, right? And I, I've, I legitimately corrected articles about this because I, I saw it misrepresented. It was compared very much to the sense of uh, CSGO, Call of Duty, you know, right? Like the, the default thing that you think of when you say multiplayer first person shooter is competitive, right? PvP. So that somebody has spent a bunch of money on the game, gotten a stat-boosting weapon, and they're using it in PvP to kill you a bunch. That's not true. There is no PvP mode in Payday 2 whatsoever. So the only negative that comes with someone else on your team, like someone else having a stat-boosting weapon is none, really. I, I there, there is no negative. You're, you have a higher chance of completing your mission because this guy is incrementally a little bit better than he would be without this this weapon and because it's a cooperative game that that, that and no and it's just not something people think about that detail i think is really missed and important uh to kind of address uh, so um, so i would agree with that but real just very quickly is there a ranking system in paid i actually never paid attention while i was playing like no no, so well, no okay, so this is kind of where it gets muddy. There is not a ranking system. It's uh, it's not like, for instance, Diablo three, right, where there you know there's a, a ranking in seasons and stuff like that. There's no ranking system whatsoever. Um, but unofficially, there kind of is, right? Like the high level, you know, it, it, it's not it's not official through Overkill, but apparently Overkill kind of endorses this aspect of the game which is kind of a head-scratcher. They're also looking to implement some form of, not PvP, but in some way competitive Payday 2, which I really don't understand. Uh, that is theoretically where two teams attempt the same heist and then are theoretically scored on its on, on, on the, the efficiency or brevity of its completion. I, I really don't know. It is, it is all down-the-line stuff that has just been talked about and... Yeah, that that's pretty indefensible. That's where it really uh it's kind of where it goes off the off the deep end as yeah. it were. No, no, so, so so that makes sense, right? Like so so your argument is essentially that given that it's not a PVP game, there's no real competitive aspect to it. It doesn't matter. That the well, fact it's that, well, so I there are multiple pieces of this argument, but this is the first piece, right? Okay. One of the big counter arguments is, you know, it's just fundamentally misinformed that, you know, it's like adding it's like if you were to add pay to win stat boost in COD or CSGO. It's just that's just not the case, right? Um 
yes. the closest thing would be like if there were microtransactions that only ever made you better at zombies, right? Um, sure, and that then, that would be kind of a that would be kind and, of and a, and and so the kind of asterisk on this is that. Um, this is true as of now, but as you've explained, that this might change in the future, or that there's this kind of uh, what's de facto endorsement of unofficial rankings. At right. which point, this does actually matter. It, it's but it's at the, honestly, at the moment, it's, it's very hard to tell because a lot of this comes from incredibly biased sources, right? The people who are pissed off about it are saying, "Oh, well, Overkill has always endorsed our unofficial ranking system," and it's like, well. Is that even the case, right? Like, I, I, it's, it's, it's sure. hard to verify this kind of stuff. No, no, absolutely. Um, so, 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 it's kind of a conditional defense, then, right? Right. Yeah. All right. Uh, but so one of the things, too, but right? one of the things, for instance, one of the things that um, I think is very positive about these stat boosting weapon skins is that um, this is a cooperative team game, right? It's not competitive. The kinds of people who are looking at these stat boosts and saying, oh, well, I'm not going to pay for the biker transactions, and this guy is out DPSing me in the fight, and I should be able to put out as much DPS. No, no, that's that's just, that's not true. That shouldn't matter, right? You're working as a team, and you're working together in order to accomplish this goal. And as long as you accomplish the goal, right, that's what you should be happy about. You should be happy that this guy is helping you accomplish this goal with his, you know, with the stat boosting thing. And I think that that's, that's, that's like, that's good design, right? Like that's, uh, that's good game design to have a system that promotes this kind of hardcore team, uh, cooperative gameplay rather than inherently competitive gameplay, which I think is what a lot of gamers, uh, really kind of flip to, right? You know, a lot of our default mode is, is competitive. Um, so, so I'm, I'm actually going to take a second here to, to disagree with you. Um, I think that there's a legitimate concern or, or a legitimate argument to be made, essentially, that if you're not capable of doing as much for the team, that you're going to feel marginalized, right? Like, um, for a very, for a much more radical comparison, imagine starting a new character in a Diablo season and being power leveled by somebody else, right? Like, you're not actively contributing to that. And, and by no means does it sound like that these microtransactions are, are creating that kind of gulf um, in power level. Um, but it seems to me like you could make the, the argument that um, I'm playing this game to play it the best I can be, and it it sucks that I can't be as good as that guy objectively, right? Like he's got literal numbers on me that I don't have because I refuse to because I'm not going to pay you know two dollars and fifty cents for a pure upgrade. So yeah, I mean, I, de I definitely understand that. And I think that that's a valid argument in theory, right? You know, it could... It, it, uh, there is a hypothetical game out there that could be on that level. I just don't think Payday is it, right? The, the amount of... Uh, damage or accuracy or whatever stat that you're going to be getting from these items it's it's meaningful in a certain way right but it's not enough that it's not it's that like this guy is going to be soloing the entire mission this the guy who's soloing the entire mission is defined by his skill it's not really that he's defined by anything else he knows how to play his class he knows how to use his abilities i'm i'm routinely like incredibly surprised at how incredibly good some of these people are where they can just walk out and just it's like they don't take any damage at all and it's not that they don't take damage it's that they've built their character so perfectly and they know how to play that character so perfectly right and that's always going to be the defining uh characteristic in payday 2 and i really don't see that the numbers in this specific instance are enough to really make that 
really make that difference in an objective sense for that player, right? Subjectively, he might feel that that's the case, but objectively, it won't be true. The biggest differential is always going to be skill. And then immediately afterwards, the biggest differential is going to be, you know, how smart he was in putting together his build. And then immediately afterwards, it's going to be, you know, does he have the right mods for his weapons, right? Like, weapon mods exist, and they're a huge part of the game. The only way that you can really get Payday to feel good, uh, I'm kind of convinced at this point from like a gunplay perspective is to get the right mods for your right guns and that takes time and that takes effort and those mods are going to be much much more defining uh to someone's objective contribution to the team than whether or not they have a plus one damage legendary skin and, um, and those mods are not purchasable correct uh well so they kind of are those mods can be unlocked through dlc um but t so so Payday has a model a lot like Overwatch where the base game has a number of weapons, generally all-around weapons that are fairly basic, have a lot of mods to them that allow you to kind of specialize, kind of. Um, but the very, very best mods and weapons are stuff that, you know, you would have to get the blankety-blank pack in order to unlock this gun and that blankety blank pack comes with it this special mod for that gun to make it the best, and, and right? then for for comparison those are all defined in the set rather than being random chance like these crates can be right um, right crates right. being Defi like tf2 yeah. there is no there's no rng well there's rng because you don't just get the mods as soon as you uh unlock them um what ends up happening is in the same way that you unlock those safes by getting a random reward at the end of every heist one of those random rewards are weapon mods and you can't get a mod unless you have the dlc for it um by the way, there are ways to get uh, much mods more focused ways by doing kind of a daily quest where you complete, you know, you complete a heist in a certain way, and then at the end of that heist, you can choose us one mod for that weapon. But but the point is, is, if you want to get mod X, you do that by buying the five dollar DLC, and you know you will it will be in that five dollars DLC at some point. It might take yes, you a little yeah. while. It's not like you have to spend two fifty and be like, oh, I got the wrong one. Let me spend another two fifty and see if I get the right one. Correct. One hundred percent. Um, that is correct. And yeah. the the only other thing I would like to point out is that you said it's like Overwatch, but we haven't had any details confirmed about Overwatch. That's so true. That's true. Comparison. I you're that is a, you're right. That is an unfair comparison. Um, but yes, I, I do not think that that's a, I you know I I don't we're not the, the purpose of this section is not to argue about um the how those five dollar DLCs affect the game. Although I think that could be an interesting discussion at some point. The so the other two things I like about these microtransactions, and these are really my core arguments. The first one is the high level payday two meta is actually pretty stale because it's very easy to understand what you know like what perfect like super super finely tuned perfect builds are. Um you know in, in PvE games like this it's easy to just mine out okay this is the number of bullets it takes from this gun to kill this enemy. And these are called, you know, uh, break points for lots of guns. And so by doing just the ridiculous amounts of minute math, you can see how, you know, the M308 with this set of mods is just just tiny, little minutely better than this other, you know, set of mods, um, than this other gun with this set of mods. And so the top, top, top level Payday 2 is stale because of that um and one of the things that i really like about weapon mods or uh, about, about these weapon skins and the stats that come with them 
is that they are the stats are always going to be minute, but for those players, that's exactly the realm that they're dealing in, right? Little tiny minute things could put, you know, the Moscone 12 gauge, which is a notoriously shitty shotgun, just an up enough that you'd actually consider using that instead of the go-to gun um you know, as defined by the regular numbers, right? And so this is one of those systems where because it's ridiculously random what you get and if you play it free to play, you know, you're only unlocking a drill however often, not all that often. You're all, you, you unlock basically one safe per week, it looks like, and drills are kind of in between there from two to four weeks or whatever. So you're really not unlocking a lot of skins for most people. Um, and... Uh, what this allows is it allows a lot of kind of top-level customization where you can have a unique build because you just, you happen to have that legendary Moscone 12-gauge, like, skin. And that is the thing that puts the breakpoints over or under on uh, on your build in, in, in a way. And I think that that uniqueness and I think that kind of finding that, uh, that choice rather than having it be a straight-up, like, hardcore calculation that's just baseline uh, is a good... That that that's good game design. Okay, so 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 you've got me at the point where these little numbers are good for um for are good for mixing up the meta game. They make the game more meaningful in that way, and then I I can see that. And you've like I said, you you've you've convinced me there. What you what where you lose me is where this gets put behind a paywall that you have to pay two fifty for or wait two to four weeks for. Which I you know putting two to four weeks between your ability to iterate is is the kind of terribleness that we saw with like the first iteration of Diablo 3 where you got, like, a legendary every six hours if you were lucky. That was right, probably yeah, I you see what you're saying. Right, but that's a tuning thing, right? We can, hypothetically, Overkill can tune these numbers in such a way that it's a good system, which is what, which is kind of where I'm, I'm coming from to a certain extent. I also think that, realistically, you have to make sure that these safes and these drills are rare in order to preserve that mixing up the metagame, right? If it's just like mods where, you know, a normal player spends a lot of time and they get random mods and so they're mixing up their own metagame just by, they're, because they're limited by the mods that they have. And so the Moscone is better than, you know, the, the Predator because they just have the right mods for the Moscone if they've randomed into it. But at super high level, at super high level play, the mods are, you just own all of the mods that you need to own in order to, uh, in order to make those decisions, right? And so, it has to be, it has to be infrequent from the, like, the pay-to-win, uh, or, sorry, it has to be infrequent from the um, free-to-play standpoint in order to really, like, keep itself, you know, stable. Um, and at the other end, you can't buy safes, right? You have to wait until a safe drops for you uh, in order to, you know, buy the drill for it. There is an exception to this, by the way, uh, that I suppose we'll talk about. It's on the Steam Marketplace, so you can trade and buy from other people if you want. Uh, but it's not like you can just buy. You, it's not like you can pay two fifty to Overkill in order to buy a safe from them. Yeah. Okay. I see that. I still. I still think there's a problem with putting it behind a paywall. But I think that's an, an adequate defense. You know, I, I see the argument. Right. Um, and then the third thing is the very obvious thing, which is. Overkill likes this game and they want to continue developing the game and one of the things that they wanted to do was expand the development team and they expanded the development team from 25 to 75 people, right? And you have to, you know, you have to pay those people some way and so I think adding these, 
you know, adding the microtransactions is pretty explicitly what they're using to say, hey, listen, then we're, we're adding more people to work on this game and, and put out free content like all of the other stuff that came out in Crime Wave or, you know, Crime Fest, which, you know, multiple guns, multiple new heists, you know, and, uh, and, the, and the microtransactions are the way for people to get those things. Um, and I, I, that, that to me is, you know, that to me is a big positive because if I am a free to play player, right, I'm still seeing the benefit of the extra 50 people, right? The, the 200% increase in their team size, because I'm going to be getting these free heists. I'm going to be getting all of the stuff that I, I have been getting for my entire payday to career. Um, and it's being subsidized by the players that are willing to engage with the microtransactions. Um, and I think that that, you know, that model is solid. It's the model that drives stuff like, you know, League of Legends and everything. And I'll always kind of get behind uh, that model in that kind of, uh, in that way. Okay. I think that makes sense. So, you know, I, I don't know if you've convinced me, if you have, if you've convinced me 100%, but let, let's say you have. Let's say that you've convinced me thoroughly and beyond and above all else. This is, these microtransactions are a good thing. There's still one thing that I think is still indefensible. And something that I think that you're going to have, that, that you have to do a little bit more to convince me, and that's that, this issue of this broken promise, right? It's If this had just come out and been like, well, there's microtransactions now, that would have probably been a little yeah. easier to swallow. But the fact that they promised, they absolutely promised there would never be microtransactions, and now that there are, I think is a bigger deal in terms of at least overkill's uh, trust with its, with, its, uh, with its player base. And how, how do you kind of defend this broken promise? So I, I think that this is just kind of an internal eye. You know, like certain people are going to defend, the, be, be able to say okay, and certain people aren't, right? Because that trust, it mean it, it's a personal thing, right? It's not something that I can assign to one person or another. Um, yeah, it really sucks. It does, to a certain extent, make. Uh, this guy, Almir, it, it does make him a hypocrite. And that really does, you know, that fucking blows. Um, that he came out and he said these really, you know, it, it's not even just like, it's like, no, we have no plans on microtransactions, right? That's that's a different thing than there will never be microtransactions. And shame on you if you thought there were. That's Those are two different statements. And uh, it definitely reads really poorly to go back on that especially to kind of go back on that out of nowhere you know like i think it's something that would have made this a little bit more palatable is you know a couple months out from crime wave them saying hey listen times they are a changing we want to hire more people in order to put out the best possible content for you in the next couple of months we may start rolling out you know new ways to pay for the game which may or may not include microtransactions i know that i said there would never be microtransactions but you know, I, I'm sorry to say that I had to, we had to look at this stuff and uh, uh, we had to reconsider that position. My bad, right? That would have been a lot different than silence. Oh, hey, there's microtransactions, right? Um, I don't know. It's it's just, I, I it, certain people are going to be able to forgive that and certain people aren't. And uh, that's not something that I really think can be... Yeah, I don't know. It's not. It's not. So, so that is this something would. where you say like you wouldn't blame people for not forgiving Overkill? Yeah, I really. I mean, I I don't. Uh, in a certain sense, I think there are some people who take it overboard, obviously, and are really sure. jumping down, you know, his throat, and that's unfair. You know, like yes, to a certain extent, being a hypocrite 
sucks and bringing out that distrust in me sucks but that doesn't give me the right you know it's a two wrongs don't make a right kind of thing right just because almir has decided to be a shitter doesn't mean that you get to be a shitter to him in return if you want to view it from that perspective um but you know if somebody were to say to me you know what I've lost my faith in Overkill, right? I really, I thought that we weren't going to have microtransactions. I was really happy with the game as it was. And uh, I don't, I, I can't trust Overkill enough to continue playing the game. I'm dropping Payday 2 forever, right? That's that's pretty fair. There's not a lot I can really, you know. It's not like I can, I, I can change that person's mind, I think. In the same way that I don't really think that somebody could say, Almir is a gigantic hypocrite. How can you keep? St- how can you still keep playing this game? That person could just say, "Hey, listen. You know, I understand that he said this stuff, but I never really paid enough attention to it anyway. I have more than enough money to spend on these drills, and I think they make my guns look neat. I'm gonna fucking make these. I'm gonna pay these microtransactions, right? I think that that's it. it that is a similarly fair stance to take, and it's not like this person is, you know, betraying." Uh, any kind of larger principle in taking that stance. Okay, I think I think that's I think that's fair, um, and I I, I think the important thing to acknowledge there is that like you know people have different opinions. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah um, that's definitely but, true. But yeah, it, it's all about your personal breakpoint as to what's acceptable and what's not. And you know, people people are going to screw up, and you know, game companies obviously aren't perfect. Yeah. Um, and the, and I, you know, and I also think it's one of those things where it's like, and I don't think there's anybody that's like, everything Overkill done has been good. The, you, nobody can make that point, right? But I think there's been a lot of people who are making the point of everything Overkill has done has been bad, and I think that that's unfair. You know what I mean? There's good and there's bad in this, and whether the good outweighs the bad is something that's really going to come down to, you know, a person's personal principles, right? I understand that people change their mind, and so... Almir saying something two years ago in the context of his company, you know, changing and, you know, people higher up in management telling him to break this news to the play. You know, like that's I I can empathize with that position. That's a tough position. I can get behind it and I can say, you know what? I see the good that's coming of these microtransactions and I'm willing to forgive this this bad thing. And I think that there are the people who are the opposites that are like, I can't believe you did this to me. I don't see how microtransactions are enough to outweigh that shit that you just that you just fed to me um and uh i I do think a big part of this is the fact that it was kind of apropos of nothing right yeah there was was no apology there was no forewarning anything that would have softened they also haven't really handled it great afterwards right you know this whole team's boost thing uh, which, you know, the team boost thing is also a part of this, by the way, because the team boost thing falls into my, my second point from earlier, which is that, well, I have I have a, a regular weapon skin from my Moscone 12 gauge, but I know that my, you know, Reinfeld 880 is the better gun to be using here. Am I going to use my weapon skin on the Moscone and be a little bit worse in the mission? But give my team, you know, this team boost at the end of it, it, that that kind of adds to the choice that you can make in order to diversify these builds, right? I think that aspect of team boost is great. But just like, you know, adding these new safes and having safes expire in your inventory by like pulling the drills off the market. Yeah, that stuff I think is also pretty negative and isn't, isn't well, isn't well done. So, like guys, it's not just hypocrisy versus not hypocrisy. It's it's a combination of a couple of good things and a couple of bad things, and kind of putting that all in a sieve and seeing where it shakes out. Yeah, no, I, I think that's fair. 
Um, and I think that talking about communication with your fan base is a good segue into the next story I wanted to talk about, which is that of um, the Forces of Chaos being a pre-order bonus Oof. for uh, I, Total this War. This one I have very, very deep feelings on. I, I uh, So so I, I'm going to lay out the story because I, I will be the defender of Creative Assembly. I don't know if you will as oh, well. In this. Oh, interesting. Well, yeah, I am 100% in Creative Assembly's camp. But go uh, yeah. for it. So, um, the the story is is essentially that, um, creative assembly. So there's this game coming out. It's Total War Warhammer. It's going to come with four races: uh, the dwarves, the humans, uh, the vampire lords, and the greenskins. And uh, they had planned to do DLC for new races. It's also going to be three games, which you all introduce new races. They're all going to be standalone, but you can also if you buy them all, I think you can play them all in the different Yeah, they, 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 it, it will be, I think they used the term, or maybe somebody else used the term, integrated expansion was the term that I saw that I really liked. Yeah, that makes um, sense. Which like is that, that, you know, it's an expansion. If you buy the second game, you can just play the second game and it's fine. But if you, um, if you buy the first game, they kind of lock together like puzzle pieces and you can play, you can play both kind of simultaneously. Sure. And so, part of what's happening is that they announced for the first game, the pre-order bonus is you get the Chaos Race for free, which was not going to be in, or was, you know, is not part of the core races as they exist. And you have to pay for them with money if you're not pre-ordered the game. Now, the controversy here comes from the fact that um, it kind of came out, and there's there's always this kind of thing with Day 1 DLC or pre-order DLC, which is that, you know, this is obviously cut content. They just... They already had it, and they decided, no, this isn't going to be in the game. We're going to rub our, our greedy fingers together, and we're going to charge the player base. ha <laughs> type of deal. Um, and so, in response to this, um, I, uh, if you were to believe Creative Assembly, this kind of blindsided them. And they released this very long post on, on their official forums about why they decided to go in this direction um, with the pre-order. And in that, in that post, they detail that they had the time and the money and the resources to do four races. And they wanted to do more, but in the realities of this current world, the resources that they had would have gotten them four races. Um, and part of what allowed them to convince Sega, the people who published the game, to give them the money to develop a fifth race was to do it as a DLC or as a... Well, was to do it as a DLC. And something that they, that they convinced Sega to do was also do it as a pre-order bonus because pre-order bonuses drive pre-orders and that's more guaranteed revenue and that means that it makes you know that makes the game successful and that's something that's good for them and i think essentially what it comes down to is whether or not um you believe creative assembly and i think i'm willing to believe creative assembly that that they really didn't have the resources to do a fifth race without something like a dlc um and yeah, I, I yeah, I, I agree with you. Uh, I, I think another piece of this is really kind of comes down to your philosophy on pre-orders. Uh, there is a large contingent of the gaming community that I think sees pre-orders as a very, very negative force on the gaming world, which I empathize with, but I do not agree with. Um, this has kind of come at the helm of guys like uh, Total Biscuit and Jim Sterling, you know, really power, you know, like a powerful games media types, um, I think have been pushing this because from their, per it, it, I think, I think it's kind of a double-edged sword from their perspective, pre-orders 
kind of invalidate their job, right? So they're extra incentivized to dislike them, right? And it's very frustrating, I think. Uh, I see this all the time in film critics, for instance, to see a movie's coming out, give it a shitty review, but it makes a fucking ton of money anyway because people don't, you know, like, people are idiots and they went to see it opening night rather than, you know, like, waiting to see whether it was good or not. And if you're one of the people, you know, you want the gaming industry to be better, you want the, the, the overall quality of games to go up and up and up, you have to let critics do their job you know you have to let reviewers do their job where they tell you whether or not the game is uh good or bad before you buy it and pre-orders is the exact opposite of this thing happening right it is it is consumers bypassing that aspect and you know putting money into bad games without without knowing any better so to speak um and that the correct answer in order to eradicate, you know, this pre-ordering kind of practice is to just never pre-order a AAA video game ever, right? You only ever wait until you see whether it's good and then you make the, ch and then you make the choice on whether or not to buy it. This is a big thing I see on Reddit, I see it on Twitter, I see it on all of, you know, YouTube comments are all over with this kind of crap. Um... And I don't agree with that because I think pre-orders kind of have a time and a place, and I, it, you're not you're not a you're not a wrong person or a terrible person for pre-ordering a game. Um, I don't know how do you how do you feel about kind of the the do you have a philosophy on pre-orders in general? Um. So my, my so I I think the attitude you have to approach it with is that a pre-order is essentially a measure of trust. That you put into a developer in the, in the same kind of way that a Kickstarter or anything, any type of payment before a physical product is out is it's like, you know, I trust Bethesda to make Fallout 4 well. I trust Creative Assembly to make Total War well. Um, and, you know, may, you know that sometimes that trust is misplaced, right? Like Rome 2 was not great on launch, had a lot of issues. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe I don't want to put, give my money to them. Um, and I think... The, the real crux of, uh, of the issue comes to the fact that the pre-order bonus is kind of like a, uh, I don't, I don't want to call it a, a, a tease, but, or like, but like, it's kind of like a, you know, uh, they're trying to buy your trust, right? Like a if, bribe, right? Yeah. They're trying yeah. to bribe you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, like the, the, you know, you can trust us. See, we will give you fancy toys if you trust us rather than any sort of like, Rather than a, a direct indication of quality, which, which you know, you, it, it's it would be hard to do that in the first place. Yeah, um, definitely. Um, and I think that there's two ways to look at at this specific one. I you know the, I I think that there's some pre-order DLCs that I don't like. Um, the ones I tend to be the most okay with are cosmetic ones that are like if you pre-order, you get something that doesn't really affect the gameplay. Um, I know a lot of people personally don't like or. A lot of people don't like, uh, say, the the type of DLCs where you get extra items at the beginning that make the the game super easy from early on. A lot of people hate those. Um, I personally also dislike them, but at the end of the day, you can also just not use those items if you don't want to essentially ruin your early game experience. But yeah, I I, I want to put a pin in that, by the way, because I think that touches on another more complete uh, kind of philosophy about DLC in general that I'd like to address. But let's let's finish this, this pre-order stuff first because I think yeah. I, I, I'm with you basically on the, on this track. So for, for, for this particular instance, for the Chaos Warriors in, uh, in Total War Warhammer, I think 
that I can believe Creative Assembly when they say this is a DLC race and as a bonus to the community, anybody who pre-orders gets it for free, right? Like, this is this is not like a pre-order thing because it's also available for purchase from day one as well. This is not like a... This is not a pre-order DLC per se. It's a regular DLC that you happen to get for free if you pre-order. And I think if you believe that, then that's a that, that's a much easier pill to swallow, as it were. Right? Well, like, I also think that at the end of the day, you know, even if they didn't put out this story, I think it's easy to... You know, Creative Assembly never misled you. It's not like they said there were going to be five races, five races, five races, all of a sudden... Four races base game, one with a pre-order, right? That would have been some bullshit. But they, from the very beginning, were super clear. There are going to be four races in the base game, and there are going to be DLC races included, right? I I, I don't... I never feel misled or like Creative Assembly has lied to me here by telling me that, okay, we have a pre-order bonus. It's... These, it's this extra fifth race. They've always told me that there's going to be one-off DLC races. This is a DLC race that happens to come with a pre-order. I, that, that, this is entirely in keeping with what they've uh, advertised so far. Sure, and a lot of people have also said, you know, if they had released the game in February and in June had said, hey, Chaos Warriors, even if it was ready on in February, nobody would have batted an eye um, yeah, type definitely. of deal. And And... I, again, I, w- I want to stress this kind of bonus aspect or, like, this kind of um, it's day one DLC that you can purchase as well issue because I think a lot of the negative opinion on some of this stuff comes from the type of day one DLC where it's, like, an extra mission and you can't buy that extra mission on your own unle- until, like, a year later, right? I think I think maybe Deus Ex had something like that. I know a couple games have had this where, like, the pre-order stuff is not available until much later and if that's real content, that's kind of like a big middle finger to your players. Just to right? just to segue into some other stuff, how do you feel about like you know like th- there there was a huge hubbub when Mass Effect Three came out because there was on disc DLC. Street Fighter has also had plenty of problems with this, where you know the data for a fighter is on the disc that you buy, but you need to get the DLC in order to unlock it. Do you have an opinion about that kind of stuff? Um, I don't think the bits being on the disc make a difference ultimately i think the argument i understand the argument there which is essentially like if if you've done it early enough that the bits can be on the disc that means that you could have released it with the base game um and then you know you're essentially just trying to get more money out of your players but i think that the reason like i think that that's kind of ignorant of the realities of the cost of game development in this day and age um as, as people would like to point out, um, games have been $60 for a very long time now. Um, games have been $60, I think, since we were, like, kids. And yeah. I remember, I remember actually, in the PlayStation 2 era, when the jump made, uh, or when the jump was made during, in the middle of the PlayStation 2 era, you know, Xbox One, like, base Xbox that was released in 2000, GameCube and PlayStation 2, they made the jump from 50 to $60. Right, yeah. And... You know what's been advancing faster than the price of video games? Inflation. Um, and so <laughs> that $60 isn't worth as much as it was when that price drop happened, which was like, what, 15 years ago at this point? Yeah, for um, real. Uh, so that, I think the, the kind of realities there kind of make sense. Like, I understand that 
a game is no longer, especially with the age of the internet, you know, so part of the th- reason that DLC wasn't a thing earlier is because we didn't have the internet, or at least not in the kind of capacity that we do now, where you can distribute all sorts of shit digitally. Um, and I think that um, games nowadays, especially AAA games, are not release-only products, right? Like, the plan for the game is the game at release plus the season of content, right? Like, the, 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 the content that comes as part of the lifespan of the game. And I think that developers rely a lot on that in order to make the type of money that they need to make in order to finance games of this level. And so, Interesting. I don't... I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really view it that way, but go on. Oh, I would say, I, I just don't... I don't feel that bits on... Like, you know... I don't think the the fact that the bits are on the disc is a meaningful distinction. And I, I do buy the argument that, you know, that I, I, I would believe, I believe 100% that there have been cases where there's been content that has specifically been cut to be put in DLC. Um, and I think there's some, uh, I, I can't think of anything that comes to mind, but I, I would believe that there's some egregious examples of this if someone pointed out. But I do believe that it's, in, in the vast majority of cases, it's not, cut content in that way um it's just part of the way that games are now i definitely agree with that actually um in the sense of uh i think i think there are egregious examples of cut content i think mass effect 3 is a great one right the the d the day one pre-order bonus dlc that came with that game which was uh you know an extra companion uh or party member it was pretty clearly cut content it was you know, it was on the disc. You could have unlocked it with the specific hacks and all of this other kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, and it's one of those things where I can buy it in a certain sense. This is the story, for instance, uh, that I've heard for Mass Effect 2, which also had day one DLC that came with a pre-order bonus. But it was, um, it was you have to send away your, your CDs for certification to Microsoft or whatever and printing, um so far in advance of the release of the game that you actually have enough time in in that space to work in that extra content right and so the 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 story goes uh that this extra content was done in that time so that when the game released and you loaded it up you could download this this day one dlc but it actually represented that you know interim two months or so of work that uh, you know the, the, that the team had been doing um and, you know, whether or not I'm, I'm enticed to believe them in the face of this, you know, Mass Effect 3 thing. The Mass Effect 3 thing, the shit was on the disc. You know what I mean? You can't come to that defense anymore. You, you, it was there two months before, you know, it's, and it wasn't this extra time. And maybe you could make a kind of creative assembly argument for it, but I don't know. It's not there. But the point is, I think that's the exception to the rule. I think the vast, vast, vast majority of DLC is exactly what you're talking about, right? It's a way, it's, it's a great way for... I would much rather have a $60 game with incremental monetized bonuses on top of it in order to get, you know, like 120, let's say, complete game than to pay 120 bucks up front and then get those pieces in afterwards. You know what I mean? Like, it's the perfect way to monetize this stuff. And I think it's the perfect way to monetize this stuff because if the game isn't up your alley, you're not beholden to that extra 50% of game that's being released if you come at it from this kind of erroneous, weird viewpoint that a game is only complete once all of its DLC has, 
you know, been released or whatever, right? I played through the entirety of Dishonored and I never went back and bought the DLC for it or whatever because, you know, I like Dishonored a lot. Dishonored was a great game and everything, but it just, I, I, it felt complete. I had everything I wanted with that $60 base game and I could, I was happy putting it away. And even though they came out with some DLC that sounded interesting, I just uh, said to myself, is this, you know, do I really want to pay 15 bucks to go back to Dishonored? Eh, I'm good. I don't really need it. You know, we're, we're, we're fine. Um, and I think that that's, you know, that's a great way to kind of do this thing. So, so I just kind of want to speak to like, you know, uh, there's this argument of the bits being on, you know, uh, about it being on disc. And uh, my, my point is, is that like, while DLC on disc can be an indication of something being poor, I don't think it's a necessary, like that means that it is a bad thing. And this, in the same way that like, you know, if you send a disc away for certification, that represents the two months of work in there. Games get released at different points for various and sundry marketing reasons that might have nothing to do with the dev cycle, right? Like, let's say your game is done, you know, in October and can be released, or can you? Know, let's say it's say it could be released early November at minimum after certification, all that, all that jazz. You know, you could probably get it released on say November tenth, two thousand fifteen, huh? Maybe I don't want to do that because there's this game called Fallout 4 coming out on November 10th, 2015. If for that kind of marketing real-life reason that the game gets pushed to, say, December 10th, 2015 or, you know, January or whatever. And in that time, the developers have time to work on more stuff, more stuff that's part of this expanded content plan um, that they've got essentially the budget for, budget for as expanded content. I don't think there's any sin in putting in that on the disc so that when it does get released, it's easier to access for people, right? Like, at the end of the day, it is much better from a from a technical perspective for that data to be on a disc so I don't have to reach across the internet and download it. I already have it in front of me. If well, that is... Well, I, I definitely... I see where you're coming from and I agree with that in theory, but I think in practice it doesn't really work out that way because I think release dates are much more aggressive than that. You know what I mean? Like, I, I I don't think I could... I don't think I could talk to many developers and hear them tell me a story. Oh, yeah, you know what? Our game... We were done with our game, you know, two months before release. It's like, no, like... Every, the, the, this is why Crunch exists, you know? Like, all of the milestones and that kind of stuff. I think the... Just the modern realities of game design are that uh, release dates are much more uh, aggressive than they are lenient. Uh, a, a byproduct of this, by the way, is stuff like, you know, Deus Ex just got pushed back six months. I got pushed back for dev, you know, they needed more time. I, I get that. Sure. I'm with that. Um, I do think a caveat here though, that, that I agree with is not all teams are equal, right? Uh, something that you hear very commonly that, that attributes to this kind of cosmetic crap going in is, uh, if I'm, if I'm an artist and I'm creating assets for the game, it's really not a ton for me to do late in the cycle, right? Because almost all of the work is being done by, you know, all, all, all of the all of my work has been front-loaded, right? I've created all of the assets and I've handed them off to the designers and the designers have handed them off to the developers for implementation and I've handed that off to QA to test all the bugs and everything like that. And by the time that, you know, QA is going fucking bananas for this shit, these artists are kind of like, well, you know... Eh. So, it's, so it's an easy way for them to spend their time to say... All right, I'm going to create an alternate model for Batman, and it'll be a pre-order bonus, whatever, kind of thing. Um, so, you're not not all departments in game design are equal, which is a principle that gets forgotten sure. very often. And, and, and kind of on, on the tail of my last point, I also don't think it's an invalid thing to say, like, all right, 
I'm developing a fighting game. This fighting game is going to have eight characters, and over the next year, we're going to release eight DLC characters. And you know, along and you know, maybe I'm the character. Like the, the character workers are set. You know, you said all game dying teams are different. Um, you know, maybe those eight characters get done relatively quickly, and there's a bunch of stuff to be done in kind of engine building or scene building or whatever. And by the time that everything's packed up and ready to go, you've managed to finish another two characters. I don't think it's wrong to say these are part of our planned DLC and to put those on the disc so it's easier to download for other players for the players yeah. later. Yep, I'm 100% with you there. Which is, I think that's that's the biggest part of my, you know, it's like the the fact that the bits are on the disc does not make something bad or not, right? Like there are other yeah. factors that you have to consider. Well, it can, you know, and there are Sure, it, there, yeah, there, like, there I'm are, not saying, it, but I think those are exceptions. Those are the rare cases, right? Um I don't think there have been many instances that at least I've heard of uh, outside of this Mass Effect thing where I've, I am suitably convinced, like, yeah, that's some bullshit, you know? Um, and uh, But I, I just kind of want to ask a quick question about your uh, overall philosophy when it comes to this stuff. I... Uh... I kind of, I, I, I think that there's no right answer to this. It's just kind of a perspective thing. But I view that $60 game as the 100% game, no, kind of no matter what. For instance, this has become a big deal right now with the Star Wars Battlefront release. Um, two guys who are typically movie critics. Uh, the first one is uh, Jeremy Johns. The second one is Chris Stuckman have both put out reviews basically condemning Battlefront. Because they think it's bullshit that you pay $60 for the game and then there's a, an expectation that you pay another $50 for the season pass to get all of the all of the incremental DLC. And finally at the end of that, you're going to have 100% game. That is going to be the completed game that you should have gotten on November 10th. I think that's erroneous and I think that's wrong uh, because my perspective has always been that... Whatever gets released for that $60, that's 100% game. And everything I get after that, after that fact, you know, when I bought Skyrim, right, that was 100% game. And then all of a sudden you get, okay, here's my Vampire DLC, and then the Dragonborn DLC, and then the Homestead DLC, and that's 20% extra game, and 20% extra game, and 10% extra game, right? And at the end of it, that's 150% game, if that makes sense. Those are bonuses, those are extras uh, to the game, and that... Whether or not that 100% was complete is kind of its own its own thing. How do you feel like philosophically about that that concept? Um, so I think it depends heavily on the game. I think there are some games that are that are at their best when they've got all their DLC out, right? Like something like like I, I've I've been facing this question myself recently. Like I, I have Witcher Three. I got it as part of buying a new video card. I played it for a little while, and part of me wants to wait the year or so for all the DLC to come out so I can experience the entirety of the game. Like, you know, I, I, I feel like a lot of like the mass effects and the witchers, um, maybe not, maybe not Skyrim, but like, uh, so there are some games where you add missions that are essentially at midway content point, right. That are, that are things that you would have to start a new game in order to experience properly. And that they're good content in order to, to have a, the best experience with the game I need to wait for all that DLC comes out before I sink my teeth into it. On, on the other hand, there are games like Dishonored, where all the DLC is either like uh, the Dunwall City Trials, which are essentially just like skill games. They're not really anything story. Or um, 
the uh, the uh, the second DLC is you play as a different character doing different things, and so it's this kind of own separate campaign. And I think those, you know, Dishonored Vanilla was was one hundred percent game, and that you know those missions, those, those extra pieces were one hundred fifteen, one hundred forty, one hundred fifty percent on uh, after that. But Interesting, just, but you would say that The Witcher Three right now is seventy five percent game. Um, oh, well, I expect it to be right. Like this is one. This is something that okay. you have to look backwards to see, right? Like That's I would fair. say, I would say that uh, Mass the Mass Effect games are were seventy five percent on release. Um, Interesting. Um, Mass Effect Two being the one game that I played most. I played all the way through first, and I played most of the way through a second time after all the DLC came out. Um. And I've, I feel that, that... is an intriguing idea. Like, I, I think, you know, the, the Shadow Broker DLC it was an excellent piece of DLC. I think it really made the game a lot better. And I experienced that my first time around. It was only because I was doing... I was trying to do a complete playthrough from 1 through 3, which I never finished, um, for various sundry reasons, that I got to see the Shadow Broker DLC. And I feel as though I missed... Like, you know, that was a piece that was missing from my first playthrough of the game. Uh, especially when it brings in things like... Uh, it's Liara who is an instrumental character from the first game um, and stuff like that. So it, it's actually kind of interesting because I agree with you in a certain sense, but I, I still kind of disagree. You know, for, I mean, Mass Effect 2, I've played through Mass Effect 2 so many times, but the very first time I played through Mass Effect 2, I didn't play with any DLC. I played through it normally and I still, and I came to the, you know, functional same conclusion, right? As soon as I played it, and this is one of the reasons why it's my favorite game of all time, right? Like as soon as I finished that game, I just, got it right like i got everything that they were going for and all of these and it was one of those first it's, it's like the first time you know somebody reads like literature in high school and they get all of like the thematic stuff like all the little crap that their english teachers have constantly been telling them is there but they never see right that's kind of what it was like when i first played mass effect 2 but i played that without the dlc and now i've played that game through like five or six times afterwards right it is my favorite game of all time um and at this point you know it would feel really weird for me to do a vanilla playthrough without doing any of the DLC content. But it's also one of those things where I've been through the game so many times at this point that I understand that the objective best version of the game disincludes certain pieces of DLC, right? Because, like, you know, okay, the two companion DLCs, those are worth it. The loyalty missions from those companions are really good, really interesting, definitely added in. Mucho, mucho good stuff. Um... The Shadow Broker stuff, 100% worth it. Fills in a great, not really, I, I didn't really view it as much of a hole as it was just kind of like, you know, like a little loose thread that sometimes these kinds of loose threads get picked up in sequels, but this time it happened to be picked up in DLC. And then there was DLC that is just like the, the Firewalker DLC where you run around in the new Mako and it's like, who, who cares? cares about this shit right it doesn't add anything if anything it just slows down a well-paced game same thing the same thing can be said for the overlord dlc uh which i also thought was middling uh and a kind of uninteresting at best um the third piece of dlc that came out with that game that i am blanking on uh, is only really important if you plan on play. You know, it is the bridge between Mass Effect 2 and Mass Effect 3, but it doesn't make Mass Effect 2 any better. It just kind of smooths over that transition. And so if I was recommending to somebody play Mass Effect 2, 
and play it with this set of DLC to experience the very best version of it, it would be that kind of weird hodgepodge, right? Where neither the, you know, vanilla no DLC version and the complete all DLC version of the game is really the best panel, you know, ultimate ultimate version of the game that I would like to see. And I think that that's, it really, it, it adds some weird stuff. And I don't, I don't think there's a right answer to this. I just think, um, you know, people are going to have different, they're going to sure. come down on different and, and I, I think, places. I think part of this is also kind of um, a product of me personally getting older and not having as much time to play video games. You know, when I play through Witcher 3, I want to play through it all and I never want to have to play through it again, right? Like, not that, it, you know, it's it's a good game by all accounts. The little bit I have played, it's excellent. Um, but I don't want to have you know it's it's a it's you know it's a almost every game nowadays is at least twenty hours long. I don't want to dedicate another freaking twenty hours to playing a story based game, right? Like this is this is kind of actually touching on to to bring it all the way full circle as to m- part of my problems with the story in Fallout Four, um, and they're not being meaningful decisions. Um, a game that I probably will play it put a second character into but for most games i don't want to have to put in multiple playthroughs in order to get the whole thing in order to get the 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 what what i want to experience and i think in a lot of cases like some in like the mass effect games or these types of games like the witcher where they're very character focused i want that to include all of the d or maybe not all the dlc but at least have you know, be able to look back and say, I, I want, you know, DLC X, Y, and Z, which can only happen after all the DLC is out. Um, and I think, I think that's a big part of why I, I feel that the best way to, or, you know, like, like what the game is, is, you know, like I say, Mass Effect, I would say that your theoretical best Mass Effect 2 playthrough, even with, you know, three quarters of the DLC, that's the hundred percent version of the game. And you can only figure out that that's the hundred percent version of the game when you're at the end point where there's no more DLC coming out. Yeah, I definitely feel that. Um, one completely random thing that I actually wanted to get your your perspective on, because I think this this is really where we get into we get into the thick of it. How do you feel about pay to win? Just like a mo- a monetization plan of pay to win. And like, how would you define that term? What do you think about it? All this other kind of okay, stuff. Okay, so uh, pay to win is when you give money for an advantage um like a a non-aesthetic a meaningful um competitive advantage um and it makes you do better um for games that are pve completely for games that are not even even uh, like i'm gonna add the caveat that it also has to be for games that are non-cooperative pve they're single player experiences pay to win not the end of the world if you want to pay money instead of experiencing the content like, you've got more money than time, as is the case with a lot of young adults at this point. Go for it. I'm not going to say that that's a, a bad thing. Any competitive game, pay to win is anathema to a real competitive game. Um, and even a, even a cooperative game. Cooperative game, it's a little bit more murky, but it bothers, like, you know, essentially, it matters to a degree, right? Like, we were talking about uh, with Payday 2, right? Like, a couple percentage points, um, like, you know, I would consider those those uh those skins to be a form of pay to win um right and a pay to win in kind of its worst form in that it's you know it's randomized you can't even guarantee that you get the stats you want to pay to win for sure you have to um but it seems so minute that i that you know it's probably not a huge deal but for things like um for 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 a 
a pay, being able to pay for a larger margin, for being able to pay to essentially kind of dominate, um, or to be you know base competitive, or you know like like to get a higher spot in official rankings. I think that's also terrible, um, and and I I don't like that. Um, cool. The caveat I'm going to add to this, though, is that there are some things that some people might call pay-to-win that I don't consider pay-to-win. Um, something like a new champion in League of Legends. Um, a new champion in League of Legends does not require you to buy it, and just because it may or may not be a more powerful hero on release because of balancing issues, I do not consider that pay-to-win. You wouldn't You wouldn't necessarily... I, this is an argument I get seen thrown around kind of lazily, and I think that's why it doesn't hold up to me personally, but something people say is, you know, you, a, a League of Legends player isn't a player, uh, isn't a champion, right? It is a it is a player. And so getting a new champion on release, it makes that player incrementally better because uh, he all of a sudden has an extra option that the other person doesn't have. Uh, th- does that argument hold any sway with you at all? If the game had seven champions and you bought the eighth one, and it was this this five-on-five format, maybe. But this game has enough... But League of Legends specifically has enough champions, and most games have enough champions, that that's not an issue. And even, like, to, to bring it back, that, those kind of, like, numbers in, like, the tens rather than in the, the dozens, or rather, like, uh, the numbers in the singles, like, Street Fighter is going to release with, I think, eight to ten characters and have four more DLC ones come out. And I don't think that's pay-to-win either, because I don't think those... Like, I don't think having that option is enough of a power... You know, it's a, it's a matter of degree. Yeah, I don't think right. having that option is enough of a power spike to 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 be to, to make it considered be uh, broken or, or pay-to-win. Interesting. I actually... I, I agree with that. It's just not... I, I always approach it from the perspective of... Yes, theoretically, this person has more options than you, but also, like... No, I, I, as far as I'm concerned, th- there will never be a released champion in League of Legends. If I have a hundred games on Yasuo and they release a new champion and my first game on, on this new champion, it's just, it's not going to be better than my Yasuo, right? Because you need to put the time yeah. into this thing. And I think that that time is really what, what kind of throws this whole thing out the window because there's really no such thing as like, a new champion gets released and it's instantly, you know, added to somebody's. Re- they've got to put the time into it and learn it just like anybody else. And I think that 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 really kind of uh, drives sure. this whole thing. Down. And I think that 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 obviously applies to fighting games as well. Yeah, you know, definitely. you need to put the time in to to get your your Urian up to speed. Um, but um, what's what's your opinion on pay to win? Uh, if we can. It's actually pretty similar to yours. I was expecting a little bit more. Uh, it, the pay to win, I feel like, is something that comes with a lot of vitriol. Um, and honestly, I would have agreed with it if I, if you know, three years ago maybe. Uh, but I actually experienced my very first instance of good positive pay to win, and it like it was a one hundred, it was one eighty. You know, I completely like, you know, I I I'm on the other side of it because. Um, you know, I was playing Dragon Age 2, and uh, I played through Dragon Age 2 all the way through, normally. Um, you know, like, and, and, you know, obviously it's an RPG, so one of the pieces of that game is managing inventory. And it's also a, a game where you have three companions with you constantly, and I like switching companions out a lot. And so, uh, making sure that my companions were at their optimal builds 
you know, it took a lot of time and effort for me to make sure that they were, like, equipped with the right items and everything like that. This is also true for Dragon Age Origins and Inquisition, by the way, but a little bit mitigated for other reasons. Um, and this is fun and engaging to a certain extent, right? Like, part of, you know, like, obviously I like RPGs, and part of the reason I like RPGs is because of this kind of stuff, right? But uh, I started my second playthrough, and uh, it just, all of a sudden, this system that was engaging the first time around... It was super fucking tedious the second time around. And I knew that they had released a couple of item packs. And one of the things, the, and these item packs were legit pay to win, right? They were, they were items that were almost always better than the items that you or your companion, companions would have had equipped when you get them. The companion ones actually level with the companions. So you equip them to your companions and they are always best in slot for that companion, right? Like super textbook pay to win stuff uh but i actually got them because i was just like dude like the last thing i want to fucking do is spend 15 minutes like micromanaging these motherfuckers inventories and i'm just I, i'm not i'm not replaying this game to you know do the the inventory management mini game again i'm replaying this game to see the story from another perspective right and to interrogate these characters from a different angle and all of this r just ridiculous item crap is getting in the way and so the this pay to win dlc that they released uh in obviously a single player game like you mentioned uh this pay to win dlc that you were that they released actually made my game experience better because it it decreased the amount of tedium that i had to deal with in order to kind of uh in order to get what i really wanted out of it and i thought that that was a really really great implementation of uh of this kind of you know monetization and it's one of those things that became the baseline for you know earlier in the podcast when i said i don't think there's a, there's such thing as a fundamentally bad way to monetize your game it only matters in the context of the game itself right and if you're going to put the same system in call of duty or you know whatever then it's inherently bad right because it's it's competitive multiplayer but it's it's never gonna bug me in dragon age 2 and in fact it was a big help to me in dragon age 2 yeah, uh, yeah for, for me it's a lot like cheating right like you know cheating a single player game that's your game who gives a shit right like i'm not gonna get angry at you like if that's the way you like to play the game that's 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 what you do right like it's, that's, yeah. it's not it's not for me to say you're you're enjoying your game wrong. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, funny. Um, but yeah, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, I think we've kind of uh, yeah. addressed the. I think we've addressed it pretty thoroughly. <laughs> we're over our yeah. usual time. I, th I, I, I think I, we're pretty I, good. I, I'm good with this. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll, I'll play us off then. Um, this has been some derps talk about games. If you would like to let us know why we're wrong and why should we be enjoying our games differently, you can email us at somederpsplaygames at gmail.com or leave a comment on the SoundCloud. You can also watch us play D&D uh, &D at some twitch.tv slash somederpsplaygames. Um, we might get some other stuff up there at some point, but that's our official Twitch channel. Um, no D&D &D this week due to the holidays. Um, hopefully resuming next week now that w when uh, everybody from those groups is back um, at their computers and on the internet. Um, and, uh, did you have anything you wanted to, to pimp, buddy? Uh, I don't really have all that much I want to pimp, but yeah, we're going to be a little bit light this week just because it is Thanksgiving. Uh, however, hopefully we will come out with our regularly scheduled cast because Mango and I will, uh, will actually be in the same place because we're going to eat Thanksgiving with our friend Mark from the other episode. Who knows? Maybe Oof. we'll have 
a a special guest who I just accidentally spoiled for baby whatever. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and uh, yeah, I guess tune in next week. Yeah, tune in next week. Good night, everyone. <laughs>